We don't have a cyber problem. We have a China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea problem. It is the week of July 19th, and welcome to episode 89 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, NSI senior fellow Lester Munson will be doing a deep dive with Dmitry Alperovich, NSI advisory board member, executive chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, and co-founder of CrowdStrike. Dmitry, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So uh, amazingly, we're recording this podcast on Monday, uh, July 19th, and just this morning comes big news, the Biden administration uh, accusing China of a, uh, of a hack of Microsoft systems affecting, it appears to be many, many companies and government entities. Uh, it's not just the US and the Biden administration that are criticizing China, it's the European Union, the United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Japan, NATO. Uh, this appears to be like a well-coordinated multilateral targeting of China as the as the bad actor here. Dimitri, what are your thoughts about uh, this very interesting development this morning? So I think this is a very important development. Uh, this is a, a very impressive coalition. The White House is calling it the largest coalition they've ever had to confront China on this issue. As you mentioned, all of NATO, Europeans, Australia, Japan, many others, they're joining in on this attribution to MSS, Ministry of State Security Contractors, who have been uh, launching a campaign to compromise exchange service in an indiscriminate fashion, not in a targeted way, but indiscriminately scanning the internet and leveraging their zero-day vulnerabilities earlier this year to compromise everyone and leave them vulnerable for others. So I've argued that when you compare and contrast this operation versus the Russian SolarWinds operation that we, of course, objected to and sanctioned Russia for. Um, this one was way more reckless, way more dangerous, and deserved a response. Um, and, and I was glad to see the call out from the White House and our allies. Um, but the one thing that was missing was sanctions. Uh, and it was even more stark when you, when you look at the fact that we have sanctioned all the other major actors, we have sanctioned Russia, we have sanctioned Iran, we have sanctioned North Korea, but yet we have never sanctioned China for their nefarious um, cyber activities. Even the Europeans have sanctioned them. So we're absolutely the laggards here. And uh, it's really inexplicable to me why we have not used the power of economic sanctions against these people, in particular, these contractors. Um, and um, it, it's something that needs to happen soon. So will economic sanctions actually stop these kinds of attacks from happening, Dimitri? Well, I, I think if, if your goal is to stop something from happening, that's a really high bar. And, and of course, we haven't figured out a way to deter a lot of these operations that are below the threshold, the threshold of, a, of an act of war. Uh, but it's going to inflict some pain on them for sure. Uh, indictments are helpful. I'm, I'm a huge supporter of indictments. I, I was glad to see the U.S. government lean in very aggressively on indictment strategy, particularly over the last three or four years. But we also need economic sanctions. And arguably, economic sanctions are going to work uh, a lot more with China than they would with Iran, with North Korea, with Russia, who are already sanctioned to the hill, with whom we have very limited uh, trade uh, uh, and financial ties. With China, we do have a lot of those. And um, sanctions can actually cause them some real pain. 
Are there any specific kinds of sanctions that you think would be effective in a situation like this? Is it sanctions on individual policymakers in China? Is it sanctions on uh, Chinese government entities? Is it, it should we be targeting these? Uh, what, is, what was the phrase that was used? Criminal contract hackers themselves for their activities? Should we be activating international law enforcement mechanisms? What do you think is, you know, kind of getting granular here? What specific steps can we take that'll that'll make a difference? So I think at a minimum, we need to focus on these contractors, the companies that are participating in this activity, the people that are, that are involved in that. Um, uh, beyond that, we need to look at the broader ecosystem. What other commercial entities or state-owned enterprises in China are benefiting from their relationship with the Ministry of State Security benefiting from the intellectual property that they steal and provide to those companies, benefiting in other ways and um, starting to look seriously at sanctioning those companies. What, one of the things that uh, American policymakers do on occasion is talk about uh, or almost brag about the robust uh, tools that the U.S. has to take offense on uh, cyber conflict. Should we be uh, thinking about responding in the cyber realm uh, against these hacks? Is that something that could dissuade them from happening? So you brought up a really interesting point. And let me address the, the, the talking piece first. I do think that we need to talk less and act more, uh, to, quote, to quote Hamilton. Um, the, the statements that we have seen from numerous administrations now that we reserve the right to respond, to me, just sound ridiculous at this point. Of course, we reserve the right to respond. We reserved that right since 1776. It would be news if we didn't reserve the right to respond. Uh, it is completely meaningless and sort of is the foreign policy equivalent of thoughts and prayers um, after a shooting. And uh, instead of um, throwing these empty threats, particularly when they're not followed through by actual action, um, as we, we, we have seen over the last six or seven years, um, we start to discredit ourselves when, when we make those pronouncements. So let's stop making those. And let's start actually um, acting and, and inflicting pain and, and creating some deterrent here. Um, in terms of what that should be, uh, I'm actually not a huge fan of responding to cyber and cyber. That's the least effective way to, to increase deterrence, in my opinion, because the reality is we're not going to do anything, of course, that would violate international law. We would not attack civilian infrastructure that would cause um, any of these countries significant pain. Uh, that would be illegal. That would be counterproductive. We would also likely not attack their military and government systems because um, that would be highly escalatory. So the amount of things that you would actually then do realistically in cyber is very limited and is going to be a nuisance. It's going to perhaps slow them down, but it's in no way going to deter them. So to, to increase deterrence, you really need to look at physical world actions. You need to look at sanctions. You need to look at other ways to apply pressure diplomatically, um, other actions that you may want to take that would um, severely annoy a particular government. And, and those would be tailored to, to the individual problems. So the things you would do to Russia are very different from the things you would do to China or Iran and so forth. And that does not mean, however, that we should not do anything in cyber. Um, when you look at, for example, the ransomware epidemic that we're facing right now, much of it originated from Russia, we should absolutely use cyber command or intelligence community to try to disrupt operations to try to bring money back as, as we were able to do uh, last month um, with part of the ran ransom we recovered from the colonial hack. Um, those are all great things to do. They're going to impact the adversaries, these criminal groups, 
in a significant fashion, perhaps slow them down, perhaps prevent them from executing as many operations as they would otherwise do, but it's not going to stop them. It's not going to deter them. And we need to look at other tools in our toolkit uh, for that objective. I tend to agree with you, but what what about a situation like Stuxnet where the U.S., it would appear the U.S. took direct action against the Iranian nuclear weapons program and used uh, cyber offensive capabilities to degrade Iran's ability to uh, manufacture a nuclear weapon or to make progress towards getting a nuclear weapon that seemed to be very impactful in terms of events on the ground. Are there, uh, are there times like that where the U.S. should be contemplating a response in kind, even if it is it gets very close to that line that you described as international law? Yeah, so, so Stuxnet was not a deterrent operation, right? Um, Stuxnet was a very tailored operation to slow down the Iranian nuclear program and depending on the estimates you might believe, um, they, they were slowed down by maybe eight months to, to 12 months uh, in terms of the destruction of those centrifuges. Uh, of course, they have more centrifuges now than they've ever had. Uh, their program is much more advanced than it was 10 years ago. So um, it, it's clearly has not achieved a deterrent effect. It was a temporary Band-Aid solution to try to slow down the nuclear program Um, without resorting to violence and bombings and and covert actions that that could put Americans or Israelis at risk, um, if you believe the reports that uh, the U.S. and and Israel were behind it. Um, So absolutely, those types of operations should always be on the table, but we should not uh, fall into the belief that those operations somehow have a deterrent effect on the adversary. They, They just do not. In fact, uh, you could argue that the Iranian cyber operations that uh, have blossomed over the last decade are a direct result of them experiencing Stuxnet or realizing they're behind and investing a lot in offensive cyber capabilities. Dimitri, what are your let's let's turn to cryptocurrency quickly. Um, my my amateur read of uh, the pipeline uh, attack and then the U.S. clawing back some of the ransom through cryptocurrency kind of proved the lie of cryptocurrencies, which were supposed to be these uh, assets independent of governments that could you could exchange, free, individuals could exchange freely and not worry about inter- being interfered with. Is that is that proven to be a lie based on the fact that the U.S. was able to go find that uh, those cryptocurrency assets that were part of the ransom and bring them back to uh, the, the victim? Is that, have we kind of shown a weak spot on cryptocurrencies here? Well, of course, cryptocurrencies are not untraceable. In fact, they're extremely traceable by design because everything, every transaction is public on the blockchain. If you're using something like Bitcoin, some of the privacy-oriented cryptocurrencies like Monero are, um, make that much more difficult. But, but by and large, most cryptocurrencies use a public blockchain. So you can actually figure out exactly where did the money leave, which account, which wallet, and where did it end up, um, even if it went through a bunch of other intermediary steps and, and uh, perhaps even through some mixer services that can split up coins and, and, and distribute them to other places. So cryptocurrencies are traceable, but they're pseudonymous in that you don't actually know who owns that and wallet. So figuring that out is, is a significant intelligence work to try to, to connect the wallet to an individual, particularly because a lot of the cryptocurrencies exchanges do not do KYC, know your customer. Um, they do not ask for identity information. They do not keep it on file. So you can't easily subpoena anyone and, and, and determine who owns a particular cryptocurrency wallet in a way that you could 
with a bank account. In terms of retrieving money back, you know, we, we don't know, uh, of course, how it was done by the U.S. government. But my sense is that it's not necessarily something that's easily repeatable. And uh, perhaps they got lucky and were able to, to do it in this particular situation, but uh, not clear that they can do it every day. What's your assessment of cyber insurance? Is this, um, is this a mechanism that actually may be enabling more uh, kind of ransomware attacks? Or is this something that, that is a useful tool in the fight against uh, cyber theft? So it's a really interesting question. So I've been a believer for over a decade now that cyber insurance was not going to help us get out of this problem, the cybersecurity problem. And I was always puzzled um, going back many years when people were saying, well, you know, the insurance industry is so good at estimating risk. If we would just figure out the cyber insurance piece, you know, everyone would be so much better at uh, analyzing risk and, 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 and it would, you know, the, the tide would raise all boats. Uh, of course, nothing like that has come to fruition. In fact, as you suggested, it has created the perverse incentives where um, these companies decided that it's cheaper to pay ransom than to pay the recovery and has only enabled the involvement of this um, ransomware ecosystem to take place. At the same time, I've been completely shocked by some of the policies that many insurance companies have written that have made no financial sense. So um, this idea that the insurance companies are somehow so great at estimated risk turned out to be a complete fallacy when they're in a huge rush to uh, take market share and enter a new, what they, they thought would, would be a lucrative market, i.e. cyber. And uh, I've been telling companies for many years now that now is the best time to buy a cyber insurance policy, lock it in for as long as possible, because you will never have rates that are this good. And in fact, we're starting to see rates go up substantially um, in this field because, you know, insurance companies, reinsurers in particular, are losing money. And they're realizing that this has become a huge problem for them and, and is not sustainable. Uh, I never understood how you could do a realistic and valuable cyber insurance policy um, when the risk um, is essentially unknowable and, and, and uh, likely approaching 100%. So, you know, in places in Florida, for example, you cannot get flood insurance in, on a floodplain because the insurance company realizes the chances are really, really high that you will get flooded every year and they do not want to do not want to pay out uh, no matter how much money you, you want to pay for a premium. Cyber is essentially a constant floodplain. Uh, and uh, I do not understand how you can make money um, unless you constrain the cyber insurance policy to such a maximum effect where it will practically never pay anything out. Dimitri, should we be thinking about cyber weapons the same way we think about nuclear weapons? In other words, should we be entertaining the possibility of a multilateral kind of arms control treaty with Russia, China, Iran, some of these other actors to, to define specific activities that are prohibited? Is that something that could actually happen in the real world? In a word, no. Um, uh, first of all, uh, there was actually an interesting debate on Twitter that was involved in with some other experts about this whole notion of cyber weapon. Um, and, and, and there's a compelling argument being made that we should stop using that term altogether because it is meaningless. What is a cy cyber weapon? It's a piece of software, right? Is it an exploit? Is it a piece of malware? Is it uh, a vulnerability tool? Is it a scanner? These all have different meanings, different implications. Some of them should be controlled from an export control perspective, I believe. But 
you know, the use of cyber weapon actually obscures the meaning of what we're trying to do. And, and just like in, in other fields, we, we do not talk about ballistic missiles and warheads, you know, in the same way, because they're very different platforms that require different solutions for arms control and so forth. We need to be much more specific in cyber when discussing these issues. But arms control treaties in cyber are essentially not workable because uh, if they're focused on, on the tools themselves, because enforcement is effectively impossible. Um, after all, how do you enforce that someone does not write you know, a few thousand lines of code? Um, you, you, you cannot ever validate that. But you, you can have agreements on limiting effects. So this is something that the United States has tried to do, of course, for many years in a variety of fora, both bilateral and multilateral, especially in the UN, to try to get an agreement across a number of countries on certain norms that we should not attack critical infrastructure in peacetime, for example. We should not attack certs that are responsible for helping companies um, and governments um, respond to incidents. Um, and they've actually gotten a number of countries to sign on to it. Russia has actually signed on to it three times uh, in this UN group of governmental experts uh, reports. Of course, these are sort of voluntary signings uh, with no teeth, with no penalties for violations. So uh, a number of countries have violated those norms time and time again and have suffered no uh, repercussions for it. So a few weeks ago, President Biden met with President Putin and Biden outlined 16 sectors of the U.S. economy uh, that he said Russia was not allowed to attack in the cyber realm. Is, is that the right approach for the U.S. government to be taking with Russia? No, I, I didn't think that was particularly helpful. First of all, because it confused everyone, including the Russians. I, I actually saw some people on Russian television post, post Geneva summit saying, well, we're confused. Does that mean that we can attack everything that's outside of these 16 sectors? What they didn't appreciate is that there's literally nothing that actually falls outside of those 16 sectors. If you go through it sector by sector, literally everything is included. Your corner bakery is included, your movie theater is included, your casino. Like, you know, I actually spent some time trying to think of anything that would not fall into one of those 16 sectors. I couldn't come up with anything. So um, I wasn't sure what the point was. You could have just said, don't attack anything, as opposed to here's a list of very, very broad 16 categories. Um, so so it, it, it did not seem like an effective tool to me. It looked to me like it would be okay to attack like a... Uh a manufacturing plant that produced pads of paper, since that's arguably not critical. So like the non-critical manufacturing sector might be okay to hack. That was the only no. thing I could think of. Uh, no, it actually falls under, uh, I believe, um, the critical manufacturing sector is, is actually very broad. So I, I, I actually think that uh, you could make the case that, it, that, uh, that it's covered anyway. And, and by the way, the reason we came up with these 16 sectors, and they go back, of course, many, many years, um, is to actually determine how the U.S. government would coordinate with different parts of industry and who would be the lead agency, you know, fi- uh, treasury for, for the financial sector, energy for, for energy companies, and, and so forth. So almost by definition, it encompasses everything because it was a way for the government to organize itself and figure out how to uh, work with different parts of industry. So um, if, if something is indeed excluded that we are missing right now. Uh, it, it, it's, it's an oversight and, and not by design. 
Dimitri, two more questions, and then I want to let, let uh, Grant ask the last question. Um, so President Biden has made a couple of key appointments. Uh, Chris Inglis as National Cyber Director, Jen Easterly as Director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. What, what's your assessment of Biden's personnel and policies overall so far? I, I said it publicly. I think it's a dream, dream team in addition to Chris and Jen that you just mentioned, and Neuberger, of course, um, um, is the first ever national, um, I'm sorry, deputy national security advisor for cyber and emerging technology, new position that the Biden administration has created, the most powerful uh, White House and a C role that's ever been. Uh, you've got General Macasonia, of course, um, who is dual-hatted as director of NSA and Cyber Command. You have Rob Silvers, who's been nominated to be undersecretary of policy and will be deeply involved in cyber issues as well. Um, Lisa Monaco and, and, and John Carlin at the DOJ. So you have incredible talent in the administration, really across the board, um, that is the best we've ever had uh, in government working these issues. A lot of the people um, like Chris and, and Jan and Anne come from the NSA, uh, which I actually think is a feature, not a bug, because they're deeply knowledgeable about these issues. They've worked for them for, for decades uh, and understand offense uh, in a way that uh, really no one working cyber policy issues in previous White Houses has because they've been doing offense in, in their prior roles. And, and I think that's a really, really important tool. I, I, if there's one sort of criticism that I would have is, and it's not necessarily the administration as much as it's for Congress because it has not really defined the lines of responsibility for all these people um, and um, it's not clear um, who, who uh, will do what uh, in, in, in certain situations. And even though m most of these people have worked with each other for many years and are um, collegial and in some cases very friendly, um, it's still a big issue that um, we, we don't have those lines of responsibilities. I worry not so much for this team, but for the teams that will follow of um, the fault lines that that can introduce. And, and it's interesting because the Cyber Solarium Commission proposed this new role of National Cyber Director, for which Chris Inglis has been nominated and now confirmed and, and actually sworn in um, as sort of the one throat to choke. But yet it actually is not because uh, it, it's got certain responsibilities, but Chris Inglis is not responsible for the offensive piece. He's not responsible for uh, protecting the .gov. Um, so we still don't have one throat to choke, and I, I'm not sure we ever will because of the diverse set of responsibilities across the government that you necessarily have to have in cyber. Uh, last question from me. If you were the decider at uh, the Colonial Pipeline Company, would you have paid the ransom? Probably. Um, I, I do not fault companies for paying ransom when it's sort of the last resort and, and, and the, is the fastest, most efficient way to bring back your network. Obviously, I wasn't there on the ground, so I don't know if there was a way for them to bring it back up quickly on their own. But if there wasn't, um, they were absolutely right to pay the ransom uh, as despicable and, and uh, unfortunate as it is, protecting the company, protecting, frankly, our national security by making sure that the gas supplies continue to flow to the East Coast uh, was way more important than paying or not paying a ransom in an individual situation. Grant, last question. So, Dimitri, I hope you'll permit me two sort of hopefully quick questions. One, during your Stuxnet comments, uh, you sort of did the traditional cyber thing of saying, you know, 
if you believe the reports about these things, because so much of our cyber offensive capabilities are actually secret. Do you think that the United States should be more open about our cyber offensive capabilities in terms of showing deterrent, uh, deterrent force? I don't think we should do it uh, for showing deterrent force because, uh, as I said previously, I don't actually believe that you can deter uh, through most cyber actions. I, I do think we should be much more transparent about our cyber offensive capabilities. Now, we will do certain things that fall under the the headline of covert action for which we will you know, never acknowledge our involvement and perhaps even deny it and certainly never comment on it. Um, that's natural. Obviously, we do this all the time in uh, you know, traditional physical world in terms of what the CIA and others may do. So it's not surprising that we would do operations like that in cyber domain as well. But um, we um, should be more transparent about when we use the military. Um, and I think we're starting to do so. The U.S. government talked publicly about um, taking down the TrickBot uh, trick, trick bot, um, uh, botnet prior to the elections. They talked a little bit publicly about the use of cyber against ISIS uh, and the task force areas that Cyber Command stood up in the course of those operations in 2015. So I think that's important and, and we need to be much more transparent about what it is that we are doing. I'm not a huge fan of these... Um, uh, nebulous phrases, defend forward, hunt forward, persistent engagement, uh, because they obfuscate what it is that we're actually doing by, on purpose. Um, and I find that there's virtually no one in this town in D.C. that understands what any of them mean outside of a, a few, maybe dozen people in, in, uh, for me, um, including on the Hill, including in the White House. And that's a huge problem. So we need to be much more transparent about our, our use of cyber offensive capability when it falls outside of covert action, as a, as a lot of it is starting to now. And then the, just a last uh, question for you. What is, what's the next thing that we're missing? Is it, you know, AI generated attacks? Is it something with quantum? Or is it just continually cyber hygiene and our inability to defend? I think we need to stop getting so enamored with the possibility of some amazing future attack. You know, we've been talking about the possibility of a cyber Pearl Harbor, cyber 9-11 for almost 40 years. And of course, it hasn't happened. And uh, in the midst of our preoccupation with that idea, what's been happening is death by a thousand cuts, where these attacks are happening all the time. Everyone is a victim from the small and medium businesses to the biggest companies and government agencies. And uh, we've been unable to respond um, to these intrusions in an effective fashion and, and, and get them to stop. And, and that's where our focus really needs to be. AI-generated attacks, I'm not a huge believer in. AI is useful for lots of things. I think offense is not one of those things. And frankly, we don't need AI to make offense any more successful than it already is. And uh, we, we need to start thinking about how do we actually increase deterrence in the space, and inflict real consequences on the threat actors that are um, enabling them. And, you know, as I coined uh, this phrase uh, over half a decade ago now, we don't have a cyber problem. We have a China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea problem. Cyber is geopolitics. And the reason it's been so hard to deal with it is because we, in general, find it very, very difficult to deal with these four countries 
in all sorts of issues, whether it's, you know, invasions of Ukraine and uh, taking over Crimea, whether it's nuclear weapons programs by North Korea and Iran or economic espionage and uh, the trade uh, issues we see with China and South China Sea and everything else. These countries pose the greatest challenges to us in geopolitics and cyber just is an element of that. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnetsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Lester Munson for hosting. And Grant Haver for producing and directing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. Thank you.